Hello, and welcome to the Flip and Shift podcast. My name is Julie Walls. This podcast was based on the Flip and Shift's tagline, flipping your thinking to then shifting your behavior. The Flip and Shift podcast focuses on temperament to then how we evolve in our thinking to which influences our behaviors. We create belief systems throughout life, which affects the outcomes in our lives. Did you know that you can reprogram these belief systems? To produce the outcomes you so desire. No matter what you're dealing with, there will always be a solution for you. So, this podcast should give you some hope. Yay! With each episode, we'll be chatting with leading experts in the field that have overcome struggles of their own. They found their way to overcome areas in their lives that needed focus and are now actually helping others to find their way. We all have a story to share. Let's learn from our past to change our future, and most importantly, inspire and help others along the way. If you are wanting to feel empowered, inspired, and are ready to make those changes in your life, you are subscribed to the right podcast. And hey, thank you so much for your support. Now, grab your favorite drink or snack, turn up the volume, kick back, and enjoy this chat. Happy Friday, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Julie Walls from the Flip and Shift podcast. We have an amazing Survivor Series episode today, and I'm so honored and very blessed that she's willing to come on my platform and share her story. Her name is Angie Brown. But before I do that, I just want to let you all know I am here to inspire and share the stories of those who have gone through a journey found their way, and, and now are inspiring and, and, and helping others. Today, we have Angie Brown coming on. She's with the Michael P. Brown Colon Cancer Foundation, and I'm excited to share. But before I do, I want to remind you all of some upcoming episodes as well as an, another Survivor Series coming at the end of this month. Our next live chat is with Marie from Empowered Through Life. She's a grief coach. So if you've lost a loved one or are experiencing some form of loss, she will be discussing her story as well as how she helps those folks go through grief and loss. She will be on on April 15th at 12 p.m. Mountain Time, which is 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. And then our next Survivor Series chat is with Alyssa Cabrera-Hart and Jamie Howe Dunker. These girls have been through um, some really sad loss. They both have lost infants and they came together and, and created kind of like a movement. It's called Walk for Baby, Baby Feet. And they have a lot of events coming up throughout the year. So they're supporting women who have faced, who've been faced with infant loss and now are helping others support helping to support others, guide, and better understand their grief and loss. So you guys won't want to miss that. That's towards the end of this month. And so be on the lookout for those posters so you know the time and date. And also, we have some several upcoming live podcast episodes talking to experts from all over the world for um, the next couple months. I'm actually insanely booked out till fall. So I'm so excited about that. And I've got some amazing people coming on, sharing their stories and giving hope ropes. And that's the point of my podcast. So today we have a big, big, big hope rope. Today we're chatting with Angie Brown from Michael P. Brown Colon Cancer Foundation. She'll be sharing her life story from becoming a mom to becoming a surviving 
thriving widow of the late Michael Brown, who unfortunately passed away from colon cancer at, at a very young age. Michael's legacy is get busy living or get busy dying, which I think is super, super powerful. Such a powerful motto. He chose to t- teach his boys the latter, and therefore his wife, Angie, carries his legacy work through colon cancer advocacy. So hello, Angie. How are you today? I'm good, Julie. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so thankful and excited that you're here today with me. I, I really appreciate it. I know I stalked you for for months. Oh, I'm excited to, to be on. Excited to share our story. Yeah, absolutely. So Angie, can you tell me a little bit about where you're from? First and foremost, your your boys kind of give a little bit of background on that. Yeah, so I grew up in the same town as Julie, Knoxville, not Tennessee, but Illinois. So yep. 3,400, I believe. 3,400. Oh, we're growing. <laughs> yes, I think so. I went to Monmouth College, played basketball at Monmouth, and then I uh, moved to Peoria, Illinois, and attended St. Francis College of Nursing. And I've lived in the Peoria area ever since. Yeah. I met Michael when I was in my late 20s and we got married. We now have uh, two little boys. They're 11 and eight. Seems crazy that they could be that old. Yeah. What's their names? Jackson is the oldest. Carter is the younger one. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Cause I was thinking, I'm like, oh, I, but you call him Jackson, right? Not Jackson, Jackson. Jackson, Jack. Okay. Yeah. We had a comment out. I'm like, oh, your boy's name is Jackson. Well, my boy's name is Jack. I thought that was kind of cool. And he's how old again? 11. 11. That's my boy's age. That's right. Cause I remember seeing you on the beach and meeting the two little boys. That's right. Yep. Yep. This is the thing about you. You're pretty humble. Okay. And growing up, I want to get into your mind a bit from a young age. And the reason being is I think that mindset is so important for what you've dealt with in your life. I know, and you were a grade younger than me, so you were very sports focused growing up. True. You played, I remember we played softball together at a very young age. I sucked, but you were awesome. I can't remember what position you were in. I can't either. I mean, I, I played softball at a young age, like you said. Yeah. So I didn't play when I got into high school. Yeah, but you played basketball. Basketball, yep. Basketball and track in high school. Yep, because I remember wanting to play basketball, but I was very uncoordinated. That was one of the things I was super disappointed in myself about is that I always wanted to be a basketball player, but Uh, unfortunately I wasn't able to make the cut in junior high. Okay. (laughs) Cut me off the, I think it was two of us that got cut, but I know you were a ferocious basketball player. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood full of boys. There was one little girl in the neighborhood with me and she liked to play with dolls. That was not my thing. Yep. I just did not understand why girls would want to play with dolls. And so I was outside with the boys all the time and I did whatever they did. You know, we climbed trees, we played in the mud, we played lots of sports. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so was... funny because you remind my daughters that way. She doesn't oh, really? have anything to do with dolls. She doesn't want to have anything to do with makeup, ears piercing. She wants to be outside climbing trees, getting dirty. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing to witness. And I was a bit of a mixed bag growing up. I I liked playing with dolls because it took me away in my mind, you know, from things going on in my world. But also too, I liked playing, I liked to be active. So, but I know that you were very goal focused in that regard. And also too, academically, you were probably one of the ones, I don't know, did you graduate valedictorian? 
I wasn't valedictorian, but my grades were definitely important. Very important. Is that something that in your family, your mom and dad, did they instill that work ethic in you? Um, What's your thoughts on that? My parents are definitely both very hard workers, no doubt about it. My brother's a very hard worker. You know, I don't ever remember them telling me you need to work harder. I don't remember anybody telling me you need to go outside and run or play basketball. I just, I wanted to be the best that I could. Um, And I had an older brother that I did not want to beat me in anything. And (laughs) a lot bigger than me, so it was not easy to beat him. Uh, So it was just, I think some kids are just born very competitive. That's not always a good thing, right? Because I think I was probably overly competitive sometimes, but I just, I always wanted to be the best I could in whatever I did. Yeah, absolutely. And do you feel like that goal focused approach, did you do that in kind of every aspect of your life or as you kind of, when you met Michael and I want to ask a little bit more about your, the, the, and how you met Michael and your relationship and everything else, but did you soften a bit, you know, cause some folks that are very driven like that, did you find that when you, when you met Michael, was he the same type of mindset as you like very goal focused? He was laid back in some ways, but as far as competitiveness, very competitive. <laughs> we would, I mean, if we went out for, <laughs> if we went out for a run at the end, we'd end up sprinting to the finish. Got it. I can see and that. I remember that changed a little bit after I got pregnant. Cause I remember we ran really hard one day. And when I got done, I had terrible cramps. I mean, I, it was awful. I thought maybe I was missing. You ran like that when you were pregnant? I, well, I did. And it was pretty early on though, when I had experience with terrible cramping and I called my, my OB doctor, I was like, Hey, I'm having terrible cramps. He's like, well, what were you doing? And I said, I was running and he's like jogging or running. And I said, well, running, yeah. I was missing my husband. And, and he's like, you can't run that hard. You have to, you can jog. So <laughs> then I just modify a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I know. And I'm, I'm just doing comparison link there. I do this often when, when I interview, um, but Angie and I ran for those folks that are tuning in, I see folks are popping on Angie and I ran track together. Now, the reason why I, we, I love to run people secretly didn't know that about me. Um, after I get home from school for me to help at the time, I didn't know I was dealing with anxiety but for me to kind of get my brain right, I'd always run before or after school. But the thing is, I was very slow and bow-legged. So <laughs> unfortunately, but what I decided to do my junior year because of some circumstances that came up, I decided to join track and Angie and I were on the same track team together. And I think for me, I looked at folks in a different light during that time because I wasn't considered, I don't want to call I say a jock, Right. But I was more of a cheerleader and, you know, things like that. But there was a divisional line between everybody in sports versus those folks that are like palm girls or band people, which is so silly looking back at it. But I feel I felt like during that track season, I felt a camaraderie. You know, I felt like I like I, I found a uniqueness in the tribe. And Angie was one of them when I, you know, because, of course, I was uncoordinated. I was slow. I was doing, I think because I was a cheerleader and could do kicks, they put me on hurdles. But I remember since I was slow, you were a long distance track runner. And I remember running with you. And I felt this sense of like, wow, I don't know if I could ever keep up with her. But you were so focused, even when you were practicing, which I thought was really, look, and as I prepared for this interview, I thought, I remember thinking to myself, what's going on in her head? 
Like, and we're just practicing running, which I'm like, in my head, I'm in like la la land because that's where I want to be. But you were just like, I'm like, oh, I can't keep up with her. We're running like a mile. And I'm like, you're like dead on. And I thought I got to get into that girl's head, but I just never really, you know, felt brave to ask you questions. So that's what I thought was really fascinating about you is that you just, anything you did, you put your heart and soul into it and really was laser focused. Do you feel that way? Yeah, it's, I'd say that's accurate. Yeah. I mean, I, when I practiced, I did not want to slow down. I wanted to, I wanted to win. I was focused on the next meet all the time. When I'd go home from practice, I'd run more. Um, same thing with basketball. I mean, I'd go home from practice and I'd practice more and I just, I wanted to win. I, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and I can see how it, I, and just before we go there, but I, I can see that type of focus and then palliative care with Michael, how hard that had to have been for you, to be honest. Cause I, I had to change my mindset on what winning was basically. A hundred percent. And, but before we go there, I want to ask you, tell me a little bit more about Michael and then how did you meet him? And a little bit of insight on your relationship with Michael. So Michael, uh, I met at the hospital. I was in school to become a nurse practitioner. I worked there as a nurse in the cardiovascular intensive care unit. um, And I was in school to be a nurse practitioner. So I was actually on the the unit that I worked on as a nurse, as a nurse practitioner that day. And he was on the unit as a nursing student. He's six years younger. So was in his last semester of nursing school. I was in my last semester of nurse practitioner school. So I met him that day because he was taking care of one of the patients that I was seeing as a nurse practitioner. So I just, you know, I said, hello, introduced myself, um, asked him about the patient. He really didn't know anything because he was a student. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> told me what I needed to know. I moved about my day. The following day, I was on the same unit as a nurse that day because I was working full-time going through school and Michael was there as a nursing student again, and he, he was always very inquisitive, okay? So he came down to the rooms that I was working in, which was out of the way of where he was, like where he could have been with his, his patients, right? Yeah, so yeah. he comes down, and he's like, hey, you're wearing different clothes today. And I'm like, yeah, so are you, I hope. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> you were That's wearing, like, dress clothes yesterday in a lab coat, and today you're wearing scrubs. And yeah. I said, yeah, you know, I was a nurse practitioner student yesterday. Today I'm a nurse. Yeah. And so bunch of questions. And finally I said, Hey, your patients are down the hallway. And he's like, well, yeah, but I'm a nursing student. And you know, the nurse takes care of the patients. We don't really get to do anything. Uh And I'm like, you need to go back down there. You know, I was always very, you know, you don't leave the patients without telling somebody where you're going, you know, very focused. And I was like, what are you thinking? So he kept coming down during the day and I'm like, he's not getting it, (laughs) you know, go back your patients. Oh, he was getting it. He was, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> so I go into lunch that day and there is, it's completely full except for the seat across from Michael. That's the only seat open in the lunchroom. What are the odds, right? It was just meant to be right. Yeah. I'm across from him. We eat lunch. I was equally annoyed during lunch as I was during the day when he was leaving his patients. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, he gives me his business card. He tells me that he does construction on the side. That's how he put himself through nursing school is doing construction. Well, I was like, well, I'm never going to need this card. You know, I just toss it. And, um, he moves on to, you know, his next clinical the next week and I move on about my life. 
I had a roommate at the time. I had lots of roommates. I owned my own house and anytime a friend needed, you know, to, to save a little money, they'd move in. I'd charge them next to nothing for rent. So one of my friends, Melanie Collins, you probably yeah, know yeah, her. Melanie, yep, yeah, Melanie, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So she lived with me along with her, her one child and her husband. And she says to me one day, Hey, this dishwasher that you have does not work with the darn. I'm like, I never use it. You know, I don't, I don't use that many dishes. And she's like, well, I'm buying a new one. And I was like, all right. So she bought it with free installation. The guy comes to install it. And he says, Hey, either your countertop was put in after this dishwasher or your floor. And you know, we don't do that. We don't take out the floor or the countertop. So you're going to have to have somebody do that for you. And so Melanie says, you know, so what are we going to do? And I'm like, I have no idea. So later that week, I'm up transferring a patient from the ICU, the intensive care unit onto a down unit. And who do I run into? Michael Brown. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. So I transfer the patient. I'm going to walk out, you know, the unit and he comes up and starts talking and I, and you know, I kind of light bulb. I'm like, Hey, I have a dishwasher that needs to be put in. Is that something that you could do? And he's like, well, yeah, of course that's easy. You know, starts telling me how he's going to do it. And I'm like, I don't need you to tell me how to do it. I just, if you can do it, that's great. You know? And so then I said, you know, give me your number. I'll let you know when I'm ready to have it put in. So I go home and I tell Melanie, I said, Hey, listen, this guy's going to come put a dishwasher in. I'm not going to be here because he keeps hitting on me and I'm, I'm not into it. You know, I wasn't attracted. He was attractive. He was hot, but I wasn't attracted to the fact that, you know, he didn't know anything about nursing. Intellectually, I was like, we're just, Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. I can see that. She says to me, um, Oh, you know, she's like, I, what if he kills me? I have a child. Like, you know, what if he kills you? I said, he hadn't been fingerprinted to become a nursing student. Like I think he's going to kill you. (laughs) I can't do that. You can't, you can't, I'm not going to meet with him. You have to meet with him. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is crazy. So So I line up a time with him. He comes over and it was like a completely different guy. He knew everything about construction. I mean, jack of all trades. Wow. How to fix anything and everything. So we were talking about all these different things that need to fix my house, not just the dishwasher. Two hours later, he goes to leave and, you know, he's like, do you think, you know, you'd be interested in going out on a date sometime? And I'm thinking, man, this guy looks like he's 18. He was 23 and I was just getting ready to turn 29. And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, why not? And we went out, I don't know, I think that weekend. And then that was it. I mean, it was like, um, it was just meant to be. That's amazing. I love that. We were engaged about a year later. Was he a year later? Yeah, it was about a, it was, it was a year later. We were engaged and we decided we were going to get married on a beach. So we decided on a short engagement. So we were engaged for six months and then, and then got married. So that's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. And you know, was, did you think my, I met my husband in a very peculiar, peculiar way. And I just didn't think he was my type. Did you have a date before Michael? And then you were like, okay, this is different. Yeah. I mean, I always dated jocks, right? So guys that knew how to play sports and Michael was a jock. He was a diver though. So very different than my usual. Different. Yeah. Yeah. A diver. Wait uh, a minute. Where does he dive at in the state of Illinois? He he went to Richwoods High School, so he was actually an all-star diver. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay. So very cool diver, and then he was a cheerleader actually too. So um, completely different, completely yes. different than my usual. And I, I mean, I was I was you know always saying like guys don't aren't cheerleaders, girls are cheerleaders, you know. Yeah. So we were. I was always razzing him about that, and he's like, well, you know, 
as a guy, you can either put your hand between some guy's legs on the football team, or you can be holding a girl up in the air, you know, and he's like, which one would you rather? Michael. He's my, he's my boy. (laughs) I love it. I love it, Angie. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. That's cool. That's very cool. So then, okay. You had, then you, then you had your two boys, right? Well, no, actually. Okay. So we were married for, we got pregnant about three months after we got married. We had our first child, Jackson, and Jackson was two and a half months old when Michael was diagnosed with cancer. That's what I was going to ask you. Okay. So your first boy, right? Right. Was, and then he got diagnosed with colon cancer, correct? That's right. Okay. So, and it's, it's such a rarity. And how old was he? He was 26 when he was diagnosed. 26. Okay. So where was he at as far as his diagnosis? Was it early stage or where, where was he at when he discovered it? He was stage three B. So the colon cancer was, um, close to through his colon wall at that time. Okay. Wow. Okay. And he had, he had 11 of 13 lymph nodes positive. So. Holy shit. So, so then at that point you, there was no, there's no doubt you had to start aggressive treatment, correct? Yeah. So when he was diagnosed, um, he had a complete large bowel obstruction. So had to have uh, surgery right away. And then followed about a month later, he started chemotherapy and he had six months of chemotherapy. So at the time we, um, we traveled to MD Anderson, which is in Houston, Texas. One of the things we decided from the very beginning. So Michael had a very rare form of colon cancer called signet ring colon cancer. I saw that. Okay. It's less than 1% of colon cancers that are signet ring. Signet ring carries a very poor prognosis and it, and it's treated just like any other colon cancer. So At the point that Michael was diagnosed, we wanted to get him to a specialist of some sort to to hopefully see if there was any other treatment options besides the standard. So we traveled to MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. We went there every three months for years. Were they Uh, doing T-cell then, Angie? What's that? Were they doing T-cell? Were they doing... No. No. Okay. He was just having standard chemotherapy. Uh, Full Fox is the standard chemotherapy that you go through when you have um, colon cancer. So... He didn't have any kind of radiation, just surgery and then chemotherapy. Um, he had a class how did he his do original. With, how did he do with that initially? Was he, was his mindset probably like a lot like yours? Let's go into this. Let's get this. Let's beat this. Right. Did. Yeah. So, so the diagnosis process itself is, you know, it, it's slower than what you want. Right. So he had been having abdominal pain. So belly pain and constipation and diarrhea and vomiting. It started a couple of weeks after Jackson was born and he took paternity leave at the time that Jackson was born. Now, when I say he took paternity leave, that did not mean that he sat on the couch or that he f- spent a ton of time with Jackson. He, he was working construction. So he was roofing houses, he was building retaining walls and he was active, right? So he says to me, you know, I've been constipated lately. I'm like, what? He's usually like a twice a day kind of guy. And I'm like, that is strange. And he was constipated to the point where he ate a lot. He loved to eat and he would eat and then he would start vomiting because it wasn't going through. And so it was primary care. And we had, um, he had gotten started on some medication for a possible ulcer. Then they changed that medication. And then after about three or four weeks of this, he called me one night. I was coaching basketball at the time at one of the local high schools. And he hadn't went to the game with Jackson. He had been at all the games. He hadn't went because he was having this belly pain. So I called him between games. I was like, hey, honey, you know, how you feeling? And he's like, well, 
you know, it's like worse. He said, I was in the bathroom and Jackson started crying and I had to crawl out to him. And I was like, what? So I took him to the ER. I went home from the game. Obviously I took him to the emergency room and that's kind of the diagnosis was slow to happen. I mean, they actually wanted to send us home with enemas because they thought it was just general constipation. I'm like, wait a minute, you know, this is a 26 year old man that is super active. Why all of a sudden be having constipation and vomiting, you know, when the resident tried to send us home with just enemas, I said, you know, I think he has an obstruction. Well, I never tell people that I'm in the medical field when I go into an ER. I just think it's better to not in my mind. So he said, well, who are you? Are you in the medical field? And I was like, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, something's wrong. And so I guess that's one thing that I would tell people out there is that if you ever go into a doctor and you feel like something's wrong and you feel like there's something more going on than what they are checking for, then you got, you have to, you have to push forward. You have to add down instinct because yeah. um, a lot of folks, like you just said, and you are in the profession, you are in the, um, in the medicine world, you are a nurse practitioner. And I think that piece, and I, there's folks I've interviewed and there's upcoming folks I'm going to be interviewing about the whole gut instinct on dismissing that or feeling dismissed in a, and and we can talk about that on a different day, but I, I think what you just said is spot on. You had the instinct. Did Michael have the instinct or was that you? Michael felt like there was something wrong, but he was willing, you know, when you don't feel good, you're not as willing to push that as hard. He was kind of like, well, okay. You know, whatever instinct. What's that? The caregiver instinct. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was in cardiac surgery at the time, so it wasn't like, you know, we saw bowel obstructions, but it wasn't like we were seeing them every day. And so I said to the resident who, you know, a resident is somebody in training. And so I just said, you know, this is like, to me, a standard bowel obstruction, you know, he has constipation. He's never had that before. And then every once in a while, something's getting by. So he's having a little bit of diarrhea and then he starts vomiting when he eats a lot, like he needs a, he at least needs a film of his abdomen. He at least needs an x-ray. And so the guy's like reluctantly orders this x-ray, right? And the x-ray comes back and you could see the tumor on the x-ray. And so, you know, he comes in, he's like, you know, brings his attending physician with him. And he's like, you know, something's going on. We want to get a CT scan. And then when the CT scan came back and it showed a large bowel obstruction, you know, eight, I don't know what the current statistics are, but 50 to 80% of those, I would say, our cancer. And so in my head, I already knew that I didn't say anything to Michael, but then when the CT read came back, it said possible neoplasm. And I remember he looked pretty panicked at that point. He's like, what does that mean? And I'm like, honey, you know what that means. And he's like, I have cancer. And I'm like, well, you know, we don't know that for sure, but you know, that's what it looks like. So over the course of the next couple of days, he had more testing. He had a a colonoscopy the following day, which really, we had to push for that too. They wanted to wait till Monday and he was miserable. You know, nothing was moving through at that point. So they did agree to do a colonoscopy on a Saturday and then they did his actual surgery on a Sunday. And we had, we had results back a couple of days later, which really is pretty early. I mean, sometimes you don't get results back for seven to 10 days, but during that time period, from the time that he had that large bowel obstruction diagnosis in the ER him and I had talked quite a bit about, you probably have cancer. In our minds, we were thinking it was probably stage four because the tumor was, you know, very big and all the symptoms he was having. And so when they came back and told us it was stage 3B, we were actually happy, you know, because in our minds, we had went to that worst case scenario that it was stage four. So 
yeah, I mean, then we were off to the races, you know, we were trying to figure out where we could go for, um, you know, we wanted, we, we never wanted to look back and think, what if, so we have fantastic oncologists here in Peoria, you know, cancer doctors, and we saw one of them while still in the hospital. And then we did tell them right away, we are going to want a second opinion, not because we don't think that they'll do the same thing as you, but just so that we have peace of mind, you know, yeah. so we are never looking back and thinking, I wish we would have. I So I'm going to dive deeper with you. Okay. Sure. You're walking through this process. You're a nurse practitioner. He's a nurse, but also too, he's kind of in going into crisis mode. I'm assuming since you are you're pretty good at going, dealing with crisis mode, right? You're you right. pretty much put everything in a processed way, which I can, right. I can temperament. I could pretty much assume who you are, your temperament, how you're programmed, um, which I think is really instrumental with where, what you've dealt with. You kept your head above water. You kept focused. You had kept your head in the game. But my question is for you, two questions actually, but I want, I, I want to see what your, your first, your responses to the first one. And I have a friend, her name's Amy. Her, her dad died at like last year and she's a nurse and her sister's a nurse and, and they were doing the palliative care out in Arizona. And we talked about this and I'm like, I can't imagine being, you know, it's different when you're treating patients that aren't connected to you, not your loved one. Right. I'm mm-hmm. assuming, okay. I'm not in, I'm not a doctor or a nurse or anything like that, but I want to know your response to knowing the process knowing the medical diagnoses, right? Knowing that the advancement of cancer, how did you keep your head in the game? And also, how did you manage that piece, knowing what you knew about him and where he was at with his illness? How were you able to keep it together? Well, I'm a realist. So I sat down with his pathology report and I read through every little piece of it. And he, almost all of the factors that he had were negative. Signet ring colon cancer. Most people only live with that for a couple of years. So I, and then I looked at all the different factors that he had in his pathology report and almost all of them were negative. Almost all of them gave him a worse prognosis, um, less likely to respond to chemotherapy. And so I knew all that. I didn't necessarily share all that. I didn't hide it. I asked him how much he wanted to know. He said, well, it doesn't really matter because I'm going to fight it. And so you can tell me what you think I need to know. So I just said, you know, we have a hell of a fight. And, and then at that point, busy. I mean, I, you know, we had a, a, you know, two, two and a half month old baby at that point who didn't sleep through the night. Yeah. (laughs) That makes it even worse. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then Michael had a colostomy. So that's like a, a pouch that's connected to the outside of your abdomen and the stool comes out of the, a cavity that's created that goes, you know, the stool goes into this bag that's connected to your belly. And so, you know, it was a learning curve, even though we're both nurses, you know, the thing would fall off, there'd be stool all over. I mean, you know, we were trying to figure out how to manage the chemotherapy side effects and, and really try to make sure that Michael wasn't overdoing it. That was a big thing. So I guess what I'm saying is, and I was, I was working for a busy cardiac surgeon at the time and I was coaching basketball. You were for, for Dr. Geist. Sorry. That's right. Dr. Geist. I yeah. Okay. Yep. He's awesome. So we were busy, you know, and he was still doing construction. In fact, his first chemotherapy session, he roofed a house. He literally roofed a house. So he was on a kind of chemotherapy where you infuse for 48 hours. So you go to the cancer center you have a, an initial infusion that lasts a few hours, and then you go home with a pump for 48 hours. 
he roofed our friend's house during that time. In fact, he called me at work and he said, hey, I need to come in. If you could change my dressing that's over my Metaport that's holding my chemo in place, it's, it's, uh, I sweated so much that it's coming off. Holy and, shit. That's amazing. You know, I was like, at that point, I was, I was just, I was mad. I said, listen, yeah. cancer's not going to kill you. You know, your stupidity is, come on. <laughs> like, you can't sweat your dressing off, you know? Yeah, but yeah. He felt pretty darn good. He tolerated it well. So I guess what I'm saying to your answer to your question is that, you know, we kept our minds busy. You know, we kept them busy with the things we wanted to keep them busy with. Yeah. It was a blessing being able to go to work, honestly. I, I really enjoyed my work. Obviously, love spending time with Jackson. I love coaching. And Michael loved what he was doing. And so we, we, our minds were busy all day. Now, I can tell you that nighttime was hard because I did have a hard time sleeping, especially since Jackson was not sleeping through the night. And then once I was awake, I had a really hard time going back to sleep. I, my mind would start thinking, yes, I would start thinking, man, what is it going to be like to be a single mom? I mean, because the reality was I knew that at some point that was the high likelihood. It didn't mean I was negative or pessimistic. I just knew that it would happen at some point. So really early on, I came to terms with that. And once you can come to terms with that's what's going to likely happen, then you can deal with everything else in a different manner. If you're stuck on that the whole time, trying to deal with that, it's hard to move on. It's hard to, to focus on anything else. Wow. Angie, what you just said is beyond powerful because some folks can't naturally do that. Well, okay. So my, my background as a, as a nurse in the intensive care unit helped, right? Because going to work and you take care of sick patients, sometimes they have bad outcomes. Sometimes they die. And then what happens? You, you admit another patient that just had open heart surgery again, and you take that patient. You don't have time to sit and think about everything else. You have to compartmentalize. And like she's compart- she compartmentalizes beautifully. But that's not always good because at some point people start, I think, people start to look at you and think, does she have feelings? You know, does she show those? I, I couldn't go to work. And when people would, I mean, I got to the point where I would just say, listen, I know you care about Michael, but when I come to work, I don't want to talk about it. So I created a caring bridge site. We created a caring bridge site. And I would tell people, you can read that. I'll put regular updates on there. But then when I come to work, I would just as soon not talk about it because I want to come and work. I want to focus on work and the patients. They deserve that. And I don't, I don't want to think about it. You know, this is kind of selfish, but I don't. I just, I want to be able to focus on work. And then same thing at home. We went home and we wouldn't sit and talk about it all the time. We would focus on Jackson and, and whatever we wanted to, to do. How long, how much longer after that did you have Carter? Two years? Cause they're about two years. Yeah. Apart, Carter's right? two and a half years um, younger than okay. Jackson. So yeah, we, we w- had talked about having more kids. We weren't sure if we were going to, and then it just kind of happened. And then it was about, so Michael had almost four years where he, after he had treatment, he had about it was less than four years by the time he finished. It was about three and a half that he was cancer-free as far as we could tell. His scans were all negative. Um, he didn't have any further chemo. He had had his colostomy reversed. So then, you know, he was going to the bathroom normally. Um, he kept his Metaport. We decided, I mean, we, we thought it would be back. We weren't negative. We just, you know, lived in reality. We kept the Metaport. And he started having some changes in bowel habits and some um, belly pain again about four years later, Carter was one at that point. Yeah. And so then, you know, we started the process over. Now I can tell you it was a a different process at that point. 
So four years later, you know, we lived a pretty normal life. We did a lot of traveling during that time. But when you think about living like you're dying, I love if we could all do that all the time, wouldn't it? I mean, because we don't know. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. None of us. And we think we have all this time and we think that we're going to save for when we retire and we're going to have all this time to travel and do all these things. Well, we knew that we, he wasn't likely to make it to that. Right. So, you know, we were, we, we became pretty impulsive. I didn't used to be impulsive. He was, but I was not, but like, you know, one day we were talking about New York, Jackson came home from school and he had been studying about New York. When can we go there? And I said, Oh, I don't know. Let's go. And so Michael got online and started looking and he's like, what are you thinking? Like, Maybe, and he gave me a month and I was like, honey, that's like four months from now. I said, let's, let's go next month. And he was like, oh, okay. And I'm like, let me see if I can get the time off. And we went to New York the next month. I'm not saying that was a financially smart thing, but we had money saved. So we did it. We did a lot of traveling. We went to Ireland. We went to Hawaii. We went all over the place. You know, we, we gave ourselves permission to live a life that perhaps we wouldn't have had things been different. That's that is so, that's amazing. That truly is. So I, do you feel like that was probably the best four plus years of your life? Uh, I can't necessarily say that because I can't say that the years that were after that were bad. Okay. So Michael was then rediagnosed. Okay. Um, we were trying to figure out, we'd been going to MD Anderson. It was right around Christmas time when he was rediagnosed and we could not get a hold of anybody in MD Anderson. We kept calling, we kept getting voicemails. And so we started searching for somebody that could do a surgery called HIPEC, heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy. And we knew that, so signet ring is very different than regular colon cancer. Regular colon cancer generally spreads to the liver and the lungs. Michael spread into his peritoneal cavity. So that's the area around your abdominal organs. So with that, this, the, what you usually treat that with is chemotherapy and then some, this heated chemotherapy. So you open the person's belly you, you either remove surgically or you burn, you freeze the cancer cells, and then you put heated chemotherapy in there for a couple of hours, and then you wash it out. So signet ring spreads in like little things look like rice, and it just coats all these organs in your, in your gut. We had read about this and we decided we needed to have it done. Okay. So we started interviewing physicians from all over the country. We found a website that we could connect with these people. And we would literally, during the day, set out little breaks where we would interview different physicians for 10 to 15 minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. And then we went to meet with the couple of physicians that we felt like were the, you know, the two that we would want to do it. And we found one in Nebraska. Um, and that's where we then went for the next four years. Now, the next four years were very different for Michael. He was on chemotherapy he had that surgery. He was on chemotherapy for about six months, didn't show any disease again, but then it came back within about a year. And then he was on chemotherapy for the rest of his life. But even with being on chemotherapy, it didn't, you know, there were times where he was definitely sick and he had a terrible rash from some of it. And there were all kinds of side effects, but he would still go and do, I mean, he would still coaching the kids in baseball and soccer and football I didn't let him coach basketball. He wasn't a very good basketball player <laughs> before we got married. No coaching basketball. Oh, that's funny. He, he was very active. He did all these things. You know, there would be other dads sitting on the sideline watching, and Michael was out there coaching with, with TPN, total parental nutrition, like IV nutrition on his back because he couldn't eat very well, sometimes chemotherapy, you know, and he would just be doing his thing. So we traveled a lot during that time. We didn't let it slow us down. I mean, we went on trips all over the place. There'd be times on those trips. We did, we did a lot of all inclusives. There'd be times where he'd be sleeping. We'd get a cabana and he'd sleep on the beach for half the day, but 
he still enjoyed himself the other half of the day. What an experience for your boys to have. I mean, absolutely. Really, that's amazing absolutely. for what they, they've, and I, I'm not trying to, I just want to make a, a little tiny comparison link, but it's, it's thinking to myself, I'm like, what kind of experience, what kind of legacy, what kind of memories do I want to give to my kid? And they don't care about, they just want to be with you. They want to right. be in your light. They want to, and, and, and I think it's amazing though, that you took them and had this experience with them, with your husband. I, I think Absolutely. they're going to carry that in their memories for the rest of their life, which is insanely powerful for them and probably helps them kind of when things feel really bad for them, they can pull from that. Which oh, is absolutely. Amazing. That's awesome. So they don't understand it all yet. I mean, in their minds, they never knew Michael. I shouldn't say well, because he definitely looked well a lot of the time, but they didn't know anything different than cancer in our lives, right? They Doctor's appointments and chemotherapy were a very normal thing. Um, they help us hook the TPN up at night. Now, I mean, we did it in a, a way that Michael wasn't going to get a, an, a blood infection, but we'd let them put gloves on. We'd let them hand us the, you know, what we needed for supplies. And yeah. it was a normal part of life for them. But as yeah. they grow and they get older, they're going to realize your dad not only was your coach. There's a lot of people's parents that are their coaches, right? But they're going to realize your dad was your coach and your dad did all these things while going through chemotherapy, right? So one of the things that I want to point out that Michael did that was quite amazing was, was, I mean, he, and you'll ask me this question. I think it was in your list of questions later about running, but one of the things he did was an Ironman. He did a half Ironman while going through chemotherapy. So some of these things, they saw him, they were there for it, but do the kids, can they fully appreciate that? I mean, most people don't do a half Ironman in their life, let alone while literally actively going through chemotherapy. I mean, he was, he was on chemotherapy at that time. Later, they'll understand it. And as they get older, I I share some of these things with them. You know, your dad did a half Ironman. Yeah, I remember. Okay, but did you know that he was on chemotherapy? Like how much harder that was? So, yes, I mean, right now they appreciate some of it, but later in life, it's definitely going to going to continue to inspire them as they understand it more. I don't, and I, and I, I think I I got chills for everything you said, but I also want you to under, don't underestimate you. You're a rock. Right. I mean, throughout this whole process too, I'm blown away by Michael, but I also look at you and I think what a badass too. Your kids are extremely lucky to have both you and Michael. Well, I, I appreciate that. Honestly, Michael made it easier. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I remember in the beginning when he was first diagnosed, going back to work. And I remember one of the first days back, I remember feeling kind of panicky. I was like, gosh, he's at home. I hope he's doing okay you know, he's with Jackson. What if, you know, he's having pain and he can't pick Jackson up. And I called him and I was instantly just calm. Michael's like, Hey, what's going on? You know, he was always like that. Like he was just so calm. Michael had faith. Michael didn't, was never mad. I mean, and I don't think there's anything wrong with people being mad, angry, um, angry at God. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but Michael never had that. He was never asked why me, he never asked, you know, he never was mad at God. He just felt like one way or the other, he'd make it through. I mean, when he was re-diagnosed four years later, he said to me, oh, it's like the Olympics, man. I can do this, you know, wow. whatever. And then when he was re-diagnosed, you know, after he had that initial surgery and it looked like he was cancer-free again, or after he had the second surgery, I should say, he was, you know, and it was about a year later, he's like, man, I really was up for the Olympics. Like, this seems crazy that it's a year. I mean, <laughs> but it was always making jokes, never never too serious. You know, I mean, he just, 
he just felt like he was going to fight it until he couldn't fight it anymore. That was just how he lived, you know? So that made it easier for me. He wasn't a guy where I'd come home from work and he'd be tearful and I can understand why he would be, but he wasn't, you know, I come home from work, he'd have dinner ready. He'd be like literally tearing a wall out of the house, have the floor torn up, be putting something new in, you know, doing a job at somebody else's house. Like he was just constantly on the move. Yeah. And very present. It sounds like he was very Very. in the moment. He was very focused on what's going on right now. Absolutely. Which is amazing. I think you are, you are as well, but you're more realistic. And, you know, I can see that about you, but I think you guys just complimented each other. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. A hundred percent. Now I've got to ask you what, what keeps you going and what inspires you? Well, the kids keep us going. I mean, through all of it, we were so fortunate. I mean, you don't want your kids to go through that. Right. But like I said, they didn't know any different. It was normal for them, for Michael to be in and out of the hospital, back and forth from the cancer center, have chemotherapy and, and IV nutrition. That was all normal to them. It didn't, they didn't know any different, you know, us being able to go and spend our time coaching them and watching their games and spending time with them. I mean, we're doing the same things as every other young family did. Right. And we have time to focus when you're just sitting at home and you're watching TV, you can focus on every ache and pain. There wasn't time for that, you know? And when I think about, you know, things that inspire me, I mean, our friends and family are just, I mean, absolutely amazing. So, you know, from the very beginning, everybody was just so willing to help. And, you know, people watch the news and they think, gosh, is there anything good in this world anymore? You know, like people so bad. No, I mean, we got to see the goodness of people. I mean, you know, their time is the most important thing, right? Their time, their talents. I mean, they came to come to help us with whatever. I mean, Michael built a garage on this house and he had so many people. I mean, him and his buddies built it. I mean, that's how it got built. I mean, their time, their talents, their money, people are so generous. I mean, we got to see that over and over and over during our close to 10 year journey. So that's inspiring, right? And then just Michael is inspiring. I mean, He wanted to go and do more than the average person, all sick, you know, while going through treatment and to, you know, it was inspiring while we were going through it. And it continues to be inspiring today because I look at it and I think, man, you're like, should I go out for a run today? Well, why wouldn't I, you know, I don't really like to run, but you know, I need to stay in good shape because I need to be able to keep up with my kids. Right. I don't want them to beat me. Yeah. I, yeah. I have to be able to lift the bike, you know, to lift the bike off the ceiling in the garage. That's something that I never even thought about. Like I remember after Michael passed, he always took it off the ceiling. I never thought about it. I never asked him to, he would just be like, Oh, you're going on a bike ride. I'd be like, yeah, he'd have it all like out and pumped up and my helmet ready. I mean, it was just something he did. Right. And after he passed, I was like, Oh, I got to take this, you know, bike off the ceiling. Right. So I go out there and I go to lift it up. I'm like, Oh gosh, like this is kind of heavy when you're lifting it like this, you know, I mean, I have to be able to little details, Angie, that you just pointed out the little things that sometimes we glaze over, but when you go back and you're like, wow, how appreciative those little tiny gifts that he gave you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I didn't cook for 10 years, you know, Michael always cooked. And so that was the ongoing joke with our friends. Like, how are the kids going to get fed? Like they're going to be so skinny. <laughs> oh, so people, make were, yeah. people were always dropping off food. And I mean, I learned how to cook over the last two years for sure. But, um, you know, at first, like the kids, 
I'd be like, it's okay. You can tell me how bad is it? And they're like, what's well, getting better, mom. It's getting better. <laughs> and let me ask you, and this is not on the questions, but what, I'm just thinking out loud. What do you, where do you want to see yourself in 10 years? What, what, what's your thought? What's your vision for your future? Well, I mean, the foundation that we've created is something that I want to continue. I'd I like to talk be, about that. Yeah. I'd like to see signet ring be a lot further along than what it is in 10 years yeah. by yeah. far. Um, I want to have traveled a ton more. I want to continue to hang out with our friends and family. And, and, you know, I want to just spend time. I want to spend time with people. I want to spend time with the boys. I want to make a difference in the world. The biggest difference I feel like we can make as a family right now is helping others that are going through a similar journey, not just signet ring, but, but cancer, right? So we connect with a lot of families. Um, a lot of them do have signet ring, but anytime we have somebody that, you know, says, you know, so-and-so was just newly diagnosed with cancer. Could you talk to him? Absolutely. You know, so-and-so's dad has cancer, you know, you know, the child is having a hard time. Would your kids be interested in talk to him? Absolutely. You know, yeah. make so it's, a difference. it's a whole family focus. Your children are involved in it. Your Our boys. kids love the foundation stuff that we do. They love the race. They love all of it. I mean, the race is like Christmas for them. They love it. That yeah. is and let's talk a little bit about that. So on Saturday, and I just want to throw that out there and you can talk a bit more about that. Since Michael did like to run again, you still keep up with the 5k, correct? So there's a, a, right. a Michael's run for life festival festival, and it's on Saturday, July 24th. So that's coming up. Where is that's that? Right. At? That's in Germantown Hills. Okay. Awesome. It's close to Peoria. It's about 10 minutes outside of Peoria. So is there anything ahead of that, that I can help you with or any sort of press that you're doing to get, you know, people in that awareness state around the upcoming event. So we rely on word of mouth and we put things out on Facebook. Um, We put up some yard signs, but overall it's word of mouth. You know, it's people that have been had cancer in their life or just had somebody going through a hard time or, or just want to come and, and support a good cause. I mean, we, we go to events all the time. My friends are always laughing at us. I mean, prior to COVID, of course, um, they'd be like, where are you going? Where are you going tonight? You know, you want to get together? I'd be like, oh, I can't. We're going to this event in Peoria. Well, what is it for? And I'm like, well, it's for this. Well, how do you know? I'm like, oh, we don't know them. Well, what do you mean? I'm like, it's a benefit. We don't know the people like, you know, they're it's, it's a good cause. You know, I read about it when I was on my way home from work, I saw a sign, I looked it up and, you know, it's not, now a lot of times we do know the people, but there's a lot of times we don't. Right. And we just enjoy that kind of stuff. So we hope that if there's people that were friends, family, inspired by Michael, or just want to support a good cause, that they'll come out. And we just... Oh, I hope so too, Angie. In any way that I can help you with that, please let me know. I appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. hundred percent. Before I put all... Tell everybody where you can find uh, all that information. My platform is about giving a hope rope. And I know people are tuning in. Let me just let, let me check the Facebook page. Yes. I know people are tuning in and they're, they're needing a a hope rope today. What hope rope could you give, you know, people that are, that have a loved one or, you know, somebody that just lost somebody to cancer, or there's a new diagnosis happening. What hope rope could you give them today? Well, I mean, that's hard, right? Because I mean, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. You know, we, we, we think that we have all this time and then all of a sudden you get this diagnosis and you think, oh, I don't have all this time. So you got to live every day as if 
you are on li- limited time. I mean, we live like we were on borrowed time because we were. I mean, Michael lived for almost 10 years with a diagnosis that most people live for two years with. We felt like we were on borrowed time. We lived a life that was extremely full. Everybody can do that. You just have to decide. We have so many excuses in our life for why we don't go and do the things that we should or we want to. And why? You know, decide what you want, come up with your goals and then do it. And if you did just get diagnosed with something or your loved one got diagnosed with something, find out what do they want their legacy to be? Maybe you'll live through it. Maybe you won't. But everybody needs to decide how it is they want to be remembered what it is they want to leave behind, and then do those things. If you want to travel, you have a bucket list. What's on your bucket list? Do those things. Don't wait till you get that diagnosis. But if you have it, start doing it. You know, Don't get so wrapped up with how you're going to treat it and cure it that you miss out on life, right? You have to live life the whole time. Oh my gosh. I got chills. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying that. You definitely gave Welcome. so many people hope ropes, hope ropes right there. So I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just want to say, if you want to get involved with the Michael P. Brown Colon Cancer Foundation, there's several events, she said, coming up. Uh, It's Saturday, July 24th, Michael's Run for Life Festival, and it's in Germantown Hills, Illinois. If you want to connect with Angie and, you know, donate or, you know, volunteer your time or services, you can connect with her at there's a website and there's an email address. It's HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash run. R U N four the number four, Michael, M I C H A E L.com. You can also email Angie at run four, the number four, Michael at gmail.com. I'm going to program that all into the summary. So you guys can link to it. And then also she has a Facebook handle. So you can Follow Angie, her family, all the events at Run for Michael. Again, it's Run with the number four. And then she also, that's on Facebook. And then she also has an Instagram handle, which is a little bit different, you guys, but it's at M for Michael, P for her, his middle initial, and then B Brown, and it's Colon Cancer Foundation. So you guys link with her support her, support her leg, Michael's legacy and her boys. I'm just really, I'm just so thankful, Angie. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm teary, but I'm trying to hold it back because I don't know, you just inspire me. Sorry, (laughs) but thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Sorry, I'm going to cry now. (laughs) (laughs) You have a great day. You too. Wow, what a great episode and a special thank you to our expert today. I hope today's episode inspired you, empowered you, and gave you some hope today. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next episode. Cheers, my friend. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, review, or even share this podcast to someone who needs hope and inspiration. You can connect with me at www dot flip in shift.com. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and even clubhouse at flip in shift. Please join me next time for another expert chat or survivor talk.